The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We are continuing our studies through the Gospel of John. We're still in the first chapter at this pace. Jesus will definitely be back before we are done, but I'm okay with that. We're just going to keep going and allow the Lord to speak to us. And um, the title of my message for you this evening is, What Jesus Sees in You. What Jesus Sees in You. We all know we have our own thoughts about what we see when we look in the mirror, but did you know that Jesus sees something in you? Perhaps it's something that you don't even see yourself. And tonight, we're going to discover together what that is. Well, in setting things up, let me say this. The text we're going to be looking at tonight is going to examine the stories where Jesus begins to gather his first disciples around himself. These would become the men who would spend the the next three and a half years together with Jesus. They would minister alongside of him. They would They would live together, they would share meals together, they would travel together. They were with Jesus all the time. And of course, there were always the crowds that gathered around Jesus, but he seemed to favor spending more time with his disciples. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Given the scope and the importance of Jesus' mission and the short time frame that he had to accomplish all this in, Jesus' strategy for changing the world is is really quite curious. I mean, certainly if he had gone with a PR firm, if he had hired a consultant to map out a, a ministry strategy for him, they would have recommended that he go in a different direction. They would have probably suggested that he go as big as possible, right out of the gates, to, to make a big splash and to gain some traction. They would have recommended launching in a big city, certainly not a place like Galilee. Perhaps they would say, you could rent out an amphitheater and get as many people there as possible. Or maybe let's dream big here. You could rent the Roman Colosseum. And and really, with that kind of momentum, we could make a dent in things. Of course, they also would have recommended that he surround himself with VIPs and other influencers to help boost his image. That's what a PR firm would recommend. Of course, we know that Jesus went in a different direction, didn't he? In a world where bigger is almost always viewed as better, Jesus chose to go small. Instead of focusing on the masses, he prioritized spending time with a select few. Instead of going after the important people and the influencers of the day, he surrounded himself with a bunch of nobodies, at least by the world's standards. See, in the eyes of the world, Jesus got it all wrong, but it worked. You say, how do we know it worked? Well, here we are. We're the proof that his method worked. The church is still going strong today. So perhaps Jesus knew something that we didn't know. And what is that? Well, he knew this. He knew that his best shot at transforming the entire world and getting his message out to as many people as possible, his best shot of accomplishing all that was to reproduce himself in his disciples. This process of pouring from one person into another, this process of transformation is something that we refer to as discipleship. And it's what we're going to talk about this evening. 
And discipleship, just so you know, is something that is best done one-on-one. Listen to me. Disciples aren't mass-produced. That's not how discipleship works. Disciples are hand-shaped, hand-crafted, one at a time. There's this really old, ancient proverb that says it like this. He who cares for the days sows wheat. He who cares for the years plants trees. But he who would care for the generations educates people. Jesus wanted to change the whole world. That's why he chose to invest in people. And today, we get to see how that whole journey began. Let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 35 of John chapter 1. It says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. All right, so the the text begins with John the Baptist pointing out Jesus, and this is really where his ministry starts to fade more and more into the background as Jesus' ministry now begins to take center stage. John's disciples begin to leave him in droves to follow Jesus. And we think, oh, poor John. But don't feel too bad for John. After all, that's exactly what he wanted. John was one of those rare breed of individuals who was okay with being anonymous so long as he could make Jesus famous. And I hope and pray that his tribe would increase, that we would have become a people and a church that works hard at making Jesus famous. What a wonderful example he is for us. Now, when John says, look, there's the Lamb of God, and we looked at that statement in detail last time, it says in verse 37 that two of his disciples heard him say this, and they began to follow Jesus. Now, right here in this we're not told who those two disciples are, but a little bit later we're going to be told one of them's Andrew, and the other is the author of this gospel, none other than John himself. And so they hear John say this, and they're like, Well, what do you want to do? We should follow him. And they just both begin to follow Jesus. Now, they followed him at a distance, and perhaps Jesus is walking along, and, and he notices, you know, out of the corner of his eye that he's being followed, and he turns around, and I don't know what they did. Maybe they were a little too nervous at first, and so every time Jesus turned around, they're like, <laughs> You know, but then they keep following Jesus like it's the Lamb of God. I don't know, it's what John said. And Jesus stops at a certain point, and he smiles at him, and he says, what do you guys want? What do you want? Now, it should be noted, these are the very first words that John records Jesus saying in the Gospel of John. Further than that, we, we don't know. These could be the very first words that Jesus ever speaks in the entire New Testament. And so if that's true, then then they're worth considering. I mean, certainly everything Jesus says is worth considering. But I want to dig into this idea that Jesus' first words don't come to us in the form of a command or an exhortation or a statement, but rather Jesus' first words, they take the form of a question. 
Now, my Bible college professor taught us that you should always pay attention whenever God asks a question. Why is that? Well, because God doesn't need the answers, right? <laughs> it's not like he asks questions for the same reasons that we do. Oh, I never saw that, never thought of that. No, no, no. He already has all the answers. So when he asks a question, it's so that we can think about our answer. And certainly that was the case here with Jesus' question. He wanted them to think about what they really wanted from life. So let me pose the same question to you. What is it that you want? You're here in church on a Saturday evening, what is it that you want? And think broadly, think big. What do you want from life? I think for most people, they would answer that question similarly to this. What I really want from life, I just, I don't know, I want to be happy, right? We believe that we've been created with our, from our creator with these certain inalienable rights. Among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But I think you'll agree with me when I say this. Wanting happiness and experiencing or achieving happiness, those are two very different things. When we were kids, McDonald's taught us something. They taught us to believe that happiness could be found in a meal. And they even named the meal for us, didn't they? It's called the, the Happy Meal. Well, like you, hopefully, I've had lots and lots of those Happy Meals over the years. And they sell them by the millions. But for all the Happy Meals I had, I found this, that the happy never lasted. And by the way, the toys always broke, too, <laughs> usually by the time the meal was done. But if we pan back, that's the way it is with most of the things that promise happiness in this life. The happiness never lasts. And as we get older, of course, the Happy Meals change, and they take on different names, and they get replaced by other stuff. But the end result is almost always the same. I remember this quote from a, a long time ago, and it said, there are really only two sources of unhappiness in this world. One is not getting what you want. The other source of unhappiness is getting exactly what you want. Right? You know what I'm talking about. I think one of the sadder moments in any person's life has to be that moment when they finally achieve the thing that they set as their goal, and they finally get the promotion, or they get the job, or they buy the house, or they get the dream girl or the dream guy, and, and it still doesn't scratch the itch or bring the happiness that you thought it would. Maybe you've become disillusioned with life, and that's why you're here. What do I want from life? I don't know. I'm searching for something. Maybe you've climbed the ladder of success and reached the top, only to discover that the ladder you were climbing was leaning against the wrong wall the whole time. What do you want? I love Andrew and John's answer. They said, Rabbi, we just want to know where you're staying. I love that. They were on a journey. But even at this beginning stage, they were able to recognize a quality of life that Jesus displayed, and it drew them to him. They were essentially saying, we just want to be wherever you are. We want who you are to rub uh, off on us. We just want you. That's what I want. In response, Jesus said, well, come on then. Come and see. I love that. He invites them to come. He invites them to spend time with him. This is who Jesus is. He welcomes the curious. If you're here and you're 
questioning, if you're a seeker here this evening, then let me just encourage you with this truth. Jesus welcomes the seeker. If you're hungry for more, he invites you to take the next step and come to him. And whoever comes to him, he never turns away. So it tells us there that they end up spending the rest of the day with Jesus. And what a day that must have been. I mean, there are really a handful of days in each of our lives that go on to define the rest of our days. And they're so significant that details from those days etch themselves into our minds, and we can remember details about them. Certainly the day I met my wife was one of those days for me. I mean, I I was a junior in high school at Rancho Bernardo High, not too far from here. And we were sitting in Mr. Mills' geometry class, and she caught my eye. And I remember what she was wearing, and I remember the the perfume that she was wearing, and I remember the smile that she had, and and so many things from that day stand out. Why? Because it was a day that impacted and determined all of my tomorrows leading up until even this very moment. Another one of those days for me was the day that I met Jesus, and I, I just remember so many details from that day. Another significant day in musical history was the day that John met Paul. Now, not the John and Paul of the Bible, but John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Some of you know this story. It happened in a field behind a church. John Lennon's band, which at the time was named The Quarrymen, they were playing at the church, and Paul McCartney, he'd come to just take it in and watch. Afterwards, they struck up a conversation and talked a bit, and Paul asked if he could join the band, and the band kicked it around and ultimately decided to let him join, and the rest, as they say, is musical history. It was a date that changed music forever, but as significant as that was, it pales in comparison to the day that John, the apostle, met Jesus of Nazareth. That didn't just change musical history. It changed human history. And it certainly changed John's history. I love how John points out the fact that it was four in the afternoon. Now, here's why that's significant. John doesn't write the Gospel of John until about 60 years after the events had transpired. But as he reflects on this whole experience as a disciple, and he's thinking back, and he's writing down his experience, he goes, no, it was definitely four in the afternoon. I remember right where the sun was in the sky. I'm sure he could tell you what he had for breakfast that day, and what he was wearing, and and what the clouds looked like. I mean, he could tell you all the details. Why? Because it was a day that changed all of his tomorrows. So it was four in the afternoon. They spend the day with Jesus. And after that, verse 40 tells us that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said, uh, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. That is the Christ. So I've given as a title to this section, Sharing Jesus. These verses introduce us to Andrew, who was another one of the 12, those guys that surrounded Jesus and did life with him for three and a half years. And one of the first things we learned about him is that Andrew was the kind of guy who was perfectly content serving quietly in the background. He didn't need to be the center of attention. And I think there's a lot to like about a guy like that. In fact, the name Andrew means manly. And I like the name so much that I named one of my sons Andrew. I have an Andrew in my family. 
And he's a hero to me. The Bible is filled with heroes and names like Abraham and Elijah and David and Moses come to mind. I mean, they're famous because of what they did. But not all the heroes of the Bible are well known. You see, the Bible's full of stories of unsung heroes as well. They may not grab the headlines like a David or feature as prominently in scripture as a Moses or a Abraham, but they're still heroes in God's eyes. And Andrew is one of those unsung heroes. He didn't write any books that made it their way into the Bible. He didn't start any churches that we know of, and he didn't preach any famous sermons. One author said that he's more of a silhouette than a portrait on the pages of scripture. You just kind of get the outline of him. In fact, the most notable thing about him might be who he just so happened to be related to. His brother was none other than Peter. Now, all of us know Peter, and the the scriptures, the gospels are filled with stories about Peter. He was the kind of guy you can't ignore, of course. Andrew, well, he was just the guy who happened to be related to him. No doubt he lived his entire life in the shadow of his bigger, older brother. The thing I love about Andrew is that he didn't resent that fact. You say, well, how did you know that? Well, think about it. We know it's true because after Andrew meets Jesus, the first person he runs to tell is Peter. I love what Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote about this point in the passage. He said this, and I quote, even before the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he would make them fishers of men, Andrew witnessed to his brother and landed the big fisherman, Simon Peter. I love that. Peter wasn't just a big fisherman, but he was a big fish who made a big impact. And what a catch he turned out to be, huh? I think that's really one of the the key takeaways from Andrew's life as we examine this, this little vignette of this unknown and anonymous disciple named Andrew. We learn from him that there's more than one way to catch a fish. You're familiar with that saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? And by the way, who are these people that are skinning cats? And why are they skinning them in multiple ways? Like, gross, right? But we say that. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, there's more than one way to fish, too, right? You can fish with a net. The disciples often did that. They would throw their nets over the side of the boat. But you can also fish with a hook and a line and a lure, And I think that describes aptly the difference between Andrew and Peter. Peter, he liked to fish with nets. And I'm using fishing as an analogy here for evangelism. And Peter, he would throw out his nets. And he was the guy who on the day of Pentecost preached to thousands of people. And in response, 3,000 people got saved and got baptized and gave their lives to Jesus. Peter was a dynamic preacher. He was an out-in-front kind of guy, and, and, and he preached with nets. Now, Andrew, on the other hand, preferred to fish with a hook and a line. He evangelized one at a time. And the thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that God used them both. Some people think, that they're disqualified from evangelizing because maybe they're not good at public speaking or maybe they think, I could never do what you do. And to stand up in the pulpit and in front of so many people, it's like, that's not for me. Well, guess what? You don't have to 
evangelize like this in order to be effective. Andrew teaches us that you can be just as effective by going out and, and like uh, just one-on-one, -on -one, these conversations that you have with the people that God puts in your life. Something else we learned from Andrew is that you don't have to be in the spotlight to make a big difference or have a big impact. So Andrew, he's not the, the central figure in a lot of the stories that we read in the Gospels. But what you'll discover as you read them more closely is that he often played an important, albeit unseen, role in many of those stories. In fact, he shows up three different times prominently in the Gospels. And if there were no Andrew, well, there would be no Peter. So this is the first time. So thank God for Andrew. But if there were no Andrew, we also might not have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You say, why is that? Well, Andrew is the guy who went out and found the kid with the five loaves and the two fish. And, and Andrew took that kid and he brought him to Jesus. Kind of cool, huh? And so Andrew was, was essentially an essential cog in the wheel of that story. But later on, when a group of Greeks wanted to see Jesus, they came and they found Philip. And they told Philip, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip, he didn't know what to do with them. So he brought them in Andrew. Well, Andrew, he did what he always did. He brought those Greeks to Jesus. And they had an audience with him. And I don't know why Philip didn't just bring them to Jesus himself. But every time that Andrew shows up in the scriptures, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. Now, who knows how many people those Greeks went and reached when they returned to their homeland. But they essentially became perhaps the first missionaries to Greece. The point is, I think there's a lot of Christians out there like Andrew who are anonymous on earth, but famous in heaven. Some of you, probably a few of you, are familiar with the name Edward Kimball. But probably most of you aren't. He's another unsung hero. He was the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to faith in Jesus. D.L. Moody, of course, was the famous evangelist who had a thriving ministry, not just here in America, but across the Atlantic in England as well. Now, the thing about Kimball was he was the antithesis of the bold evangelist. He was a timid, soft-spoken guy. He, he says that as he was sharing the gospel with Moody, that his knees were shaking. He would later say that he spoke with limping words about Christ and his love or something like that. By his own admission, it was a weak appeal. But nevertheless, it wasn't in the power of his appeal, but through the working of the Holy Spirit that God moved Moody's heart and he gave his life to the Lord. And the rest is church history. Moody went on to be used mightily of the Lord. And there are tens of thousands of people who attributed their faith in Jesus to the ministry of D.L. Moody. Not only that, he subsequently founded the Moody Bible Institute, where thousands of missionaries, evangelists, pastors, and other Christian workers are even to this day being trained and sent out. By the way, that is all fruit that hangs from the limbs of the tree of a guy named Edward Kimball. And each of you has an Edward Kimball in your story. You guys don't know the names Andy Blevins or Mark O, but I'm just thinking of these guys that are part of my story. And they discipled me along the way in my journey. And how did they do that? They, they taught me how to play my first chords on a guitar. 
They taught me how to, 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 to study the Bible, and we would meet in their homes, and they taught me how to drive stick shift, things like that. And just doing life, that's what discipleship looks like. It's one person taking what they know about Jesus and pouring that into the heart of another person. You should always have someone in your story who's further along. I am so intentional about this. I will surround myself. And in my circle, there are always going to be people who are further along. And maybe they have children who are in the next stage of life. And I will sit down with them over coffee or at lunch. And I'll talk to them and ask them, well, what did you do with this? Or how did you handle that? And there are people that, that know the Lord and have walked with the Lord and love the Lord. And, and I just admire their relationship with Jesus. And I'll sit them down. And and I'll just ask them questions, and, and I'll, I'll be discipled from them. And the great thing today with the internet is that you can have a tribe of mentors that you might not even get to know them personally, but from a distance, you can be discipled by just about anybody. Well, that was Andrew. And for every hero whose name you know and celebrate, He's a great reminder that there are several unsung heroes and hidden figures whose contributions to the story that is so vital that's being told that they're just as important to that story. He introduces Peter to Jesus. And, and we read about his inter first interaction with Jesus in verse two, 42. It says, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. Eh, I'm going to call you Cephas which translated means Peter. I love this. <laughs> Jesus meets Simon, and he gives him a new name or a nickname. I guess, you know, one of the great joys of being a parent is that you get to name your kids. And I remember with each of our kids, we took that very seriously, of course, as you would. And you're just thinking, like, what about this name? And maybe you like the sound of it. But then there's always that name that you like, but you can't use because you knew somebody, or maybe your spouse knew somebody with that name. And it just wrecked it for them, you know? And it's, it's hard if you're married to a teacher because they have a lot of students with that name. Oh, no, we can't use that name, you know? But it's such a joy to get to name your kid. And then as your kids grow up, isn't it wonderful and surprising how you're like, oh, you are so, you're such a Quinn, you're such a Hattie, you're such an Andrew, you're such a Ben. And, and it just, those are my kids' names, and it just fits them so perfectly. Well, Jesus, he, he made all of us, right? And so he knows us inside and out. He knows us better than our parents. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so if he wants to change your name, then he gets to. I suppose that's how it works. It says that he looked at Simon. Now, when it says he looked at him, that word looked might better be translated gazed. Jesus, with his eyes of pure love, gazed into the very soul and the heart of this man named Simon. He looked right through him. He was looking into his soul. And he gives him a new name. Now, in the Bible, you see this happen periodically, where God will give somebody a new name. And it's, it always signifies a significant change in a person's relationship with God. So Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. And here, Simon becomes Peter. And it's always significant. You know, the name Simon, you want to know what it means? It means shifting sand. 
And in a lot of ways, that's who Peter was. He was up and he was down. He was solid as a rock one day and he was sinking like sand, quicksand the next. And so Jesus takes this man who is wishy-washy, can't be held together like a rock. He's Simon, he's shifting sand. And he gives him a new name, which means rock. He's like, I'm, Jesus says, I'm gonna call you Dwayne Johnson because you're the rock. <laughs> the interesting thing is, throughout the Gospels, when you read about Peter, sometimes the Gospels will refer to him as Simon, and other times they'll refer to him as Peter. It's as though the Gospel author was like, oh, I don't know, he was acting more like Simon on this day in this story. And this day, he's, no, he's more like Peter. And then some of them, they couldn't put it together. And there are often times in the scriptures where you'll read about Simon Peter, and the two names just get squished together. And I think I like that best of all. Because there are so many times in my life where I identify as Simon. Who am I? Oh, man, I am not the rock. I am shifting sand. I'm one step forward and two steps back. I am falling flat on my face. I am only opening my mouth so I can insert my foot. That was Simon. And then there are other days where I feel like I'm more like Peter. Where I, I, I think, you know, Lord, I'm starting to make some progress. And Man, I, I feel like I'm being led by the Spirit of God, and I'm hearing the voice of God. I'm, I'm walking in obedience with the Lord. And there are days where I feel a little bit like Peter. But most days, if I'm honest with you, what I feel like is Simon Peter. <laughs> I'm both. I'm hot and I'm cold. I'm up and I'm down. I'm soaring on the wings of eagles, and I'm falling flat on my face. And I'm both. But the thing that I love about Jesus is he looks at Simon. And he looks through Simon. And he finds the Peter inside, and he pulls him out. He says, you are Simon. That's who you are, for better or worse. We got this fallen flesh. And there's going to be some Simon in me till the day I go to glory. He says, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. What that tells us is this. Jesus doesn't just see us as we are. He sees us as we are becoming. He doesn't just see us in our current state. He sees all of our potential. We see the mess Jesus sees the masterpiece. Somebody say amen, hallelujah. I see all of the debris. He sees the finished product. Have you ever done a home remodel? I have a couple of times now, and we redid our kitchen a, couple, a few years back now. And there are points in that remodel process where it's just a hot mess. If you've ever done a remodel, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And after they've done the demo day, you know, and they've ripped out all the cabinets, and, and there's nothing there, and, and, and there's no, you can't see anything yet, it's, it's hard to picture what it's going to become. But if you're working with a plan, and we worked with an IKEA plan, those were our blueprints. And so as long as we stuck to the plan, we knew that the finished product would look good because we'd seen the picture in the catalog. But we had to trust the blueprints. We had to trust the architect. We had to trust the plan. And so too in your life, as you look in the mirror and you say, I am tore up from the floor up. I am a hot mess. 
You just have to remember something that God's not done with you yet. You're a work in progress, and he will complete and finish the good work that he began in you. That is the promise of scripture. And if you need proof of that, just look at the life of Simon Peter and be encouraged. Well, he goes on in verses 43 through 46, and he calls his next two disciples. And I've given as a heading for this section, follow me. It says this in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, and he told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. To Philip, Jesus walks up, and he says, follow me. These two words, by the way, encapsulate everything that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's an invitation into a life of learning, a life of adventure, a life of hope, a life of faith, a life of love, a life of peace. And it's the invitation of Jesus to every person in this room tonight. Jesus is inviting you to follow him on a journey. And you say, where are we going? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you the destination. I'm just going to invite you to come and to follow me. You know, a while ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story on the most admired people in history. The names topping the list come as no surprise. Jesus was first. Napoleon was also on there. So was Muhammad, Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington. All that to say this, there are a lot of people out there who admire Jesus, who respect Jesus, who hold Jesus in the highest regard. But Jesus never said, admire me. He never said, respect me. He didn't beg for us to like him. What he said was, follow me. You see, an admirer is impressed, but a follower, a follower is devoted. An admirer applauds, but a follower lays down his life. Jesus had plenty of admirers, but when it came down to it, he had few followers. But to those who took him up on that invitation, they never looked back. They never regretted it, not even for a moment. And I'm here to tell you as a follower of Jesus that I haven't looked back either. It hasn't always been perfect. It hasn't always been easy. And it hasn't always worked out the way I wanted it to. But I can tell you, after walking with Jesus now for dozens of years, that I have no regrets to the man or woman who decides to follow Jesus, you will never regret that decision. You'll make a lot of bad decisions in your life, decisions that you'll regret. I had made one earlier about this burrito that I had right before I came on this stage. <laughs> but that's one decision you won't regret. Why did I tell you that? TMI. Just move on. OK. Philip, <laughs> how do you recover from that? We can edit that out. We'll use tomorrow's tape. This is a Saturday night crowd. You guys just get the unfiltered. It's, it's not, I mean, we're working out the kinks. There's a few road uh, speed bumps, right? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Philip took Jesus up on his invitation. And then I love what he does. He does the same thing that Andrew did. He goes and he finds Nathaniel. Andrew realizes, without even fully 
comprehending what he's saying. We found the Messiah. And he wants to tell his, his brother, Peter. Well, Philip does the same thing. I mean, some news is just too good to keep to yourself. So he tells Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel, he's more of a skeptic. And maybe you resonate with him. And so he demurs. And I love Philip's response. He doesn't argue with him. He just says, well, come and see for yourself. I mean, Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth, like, what was Nazareth? It was like the Fresno of the, the Middle East. I don't know. I'm just, if you're from Fresno, again, it's Saturday night. Forgive me. <laughs> he says, just come and see for yourself. He doesn't argue with him. Listen, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. And even if you could, like, is that really the story that you want to tell? I mean, if you can talk someone into becoming a Christian, then someone else is going to be able to talk them out of following Jesus. I mean, what do you want? You want to get to heaven? And it's like, well, how do you end up here? And the guy's like, well, you know, I was arguing with this guy, and I lost the argument, so here I am. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I got that from my dad's notes. I can picture him saying that. Well, you know, it's like, I lost the argument. <laughs> how much better to simply say, just come and see. Come and see for yourself. And so, thankfully, Nathaniel does that very thing. And when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, apprehensively, we might add, he said to him, ah, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how did you know me? Don't you love that? Hey, you're an Israelite. And man, there's no shadiness about you. You're just tried and true. You're you're, you're, you're the real deal. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, you, you obviously know me. <laughs> Who told you about me? And Jesus said, well, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip even called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. <laughs> Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus sees Nathanael. They're separated by some distance. But he sees him. He, he doesn't just see what he's doing. He sees into his heart. And Nathanael might have started out as a skeptic, but when he realized this man, this rabbi, this prophet named Jesus, he doesn't just see with the physical eyes, but he sees my heart's desires. He sees my deepest dreams. He sees the, the secret compartments of my soul that I don't share with anyone, and he's converted in a moment. He was in. The section ends with Jesus referencing this, this vision. It's a vision that has its roots go all the way back to Jacob. And, and a vision that he received from the Lord. He fell asleep as he was running away from his brother. And, and he falls down and he pulls up a rock for a pillow. How tired do you have to be to use a rock for a pillow? And he sleeps hard that night. He was tired. And he has this vision that God gives him of, of an open heaven, the gates of heaven, and this ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending. And Jesus says, that ladder that Jacob saw, it was me. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. And you're going to see angels, Nathaniel. You're going to see miracles, Nathaniel. You're going to see the kingdom of heaven 
on earth because wherever the king is, his kingdom has come. And this is the adventure that Jesus was inviting Nathaniel into. But guess what? It's something that he invites every one of us into as well. Such is the life that Jesus invites his disciples into. Do you have doubts? Great, bring them. Do you have questions? That's okay too, just come. You'll never know fulfillment, like true, meaningful fulfillment, until you come and see for yourself. You'll never know love until you come and see. You'll never know peace until you come and see. You'll never know true joy until you come and see. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I can tell you about it, but some things just have to be experienced on your own to really grasp them. So as we close this evening, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I just wonder if anything I've shared here this evening struck a chord with you. And maybe, just maybe, that's the Spirit of God moving in your heart, bringing you to this point and to this place of decision. These guys didn't know everything. They didn't have all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted, not even by a long shot. They still had questions even after Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why this whole thing called discipleship is a process. It's a journey. But it's something that is done over time. It's something that Jesus does one-on-one. -on -one. He has a unique plan for your life. He's, he, he's wanting to do something special with you and in you and for you and ultimately through you. There's a work that only you can fulfill. And you do it in partnership with the Lord. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to take away your guilt. He wants to wash away your shame. He wants to remove your feeling of loneliness. Jesus wants to rid you of the chains that hold you from the life that you know lies just beyond your grasp. Maybe you've been looking in all these different kinds of happy meals. And Jesus is here tonight. He's saying, what do you want? And finally, you're at that point, And you're at that place in your life where, like Andrew and like John, you're ready to say, I don't fully know how to put it into words, but I just know that what I want and what I need is you. Jesus, you are the fountain of living water. You are the answer to life's biggest questions. You are the source and supply for all of life's needs. If that's you, if that's the desire of your heart, I want to pray with you right now. I'm just going to ask that you raise your hand high so I can pray with you. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these who are raising their hands. You say, why do I have to raise my hand? I don't know. I think it's just that sometimes when you cement on the outside a decision that you've made on the inside, it just has a way of solidifying that decision, and it makes it real to you. So is there anyone else this evening that would say, I want Jesus? And when you pray, will you pray with me? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray together. And let me just invite those of you who raise your hands and those of you who would like, you're already a follower of Jesus, but you want to recommit your life or you just want to, I like the way my dad used to say it. You just want to renew your vows. You can pray this out loud as well. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. 
You're what I want. Thank you for going to the cross in my place and bearing my sin and rising from the dead. I put my faith in you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and help me to follow you all the days of my life till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask all of these things together. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.